Hello and welcome to the Event Industry News podcast. Um, joining the podcast today, we welcome Nick Morgan from the Big Cat Group. Nick, thanks for joining the podcast. Hello, you're right. <coughs> Absolutely fantastic, yeah. And by the joy of technology, today's podcast linking the two of us together from uh, two very different locations in the country. I presume you're in uh, HQ. Are you Big Cat HQ at the moment? I, uh, I am in Brick Lane, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Um, before we kick off, uh, today's episode properly and we're going to be looking at, at brand event trends. Nick, first of all tell us exactly what your job role is and um, what the company does for people who haven't heard of you before. Yeah, so uh, Big Cat Group's a sort of holding company but the, the agency that we're talking about today is The Fair. We are The Fair and they are a full service production agency in health and safety and we generally look after events of all sorts of different forms in excess of 5,000 people. You know, we don't do any of this for corporate market. It's all external, generally outside. Um, last year and this year we're doing about 60 to 100 different events across the country and, <clears throat> and across Europe more often these days. And moving on to today's subject, many of those events that you will have worked on uh, from when the company started and your experience will involve working alongside brands, brands who want to be associated with a particular type of event in order to gain more, expo more exposure, increase the sales, it's all about business, but more and more we're seeing a move to brands actually wanting to host their own standalone events. Um, tell us a little bit more about that, that particular move and what we're seeing in the industry at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only go on our own experience, but yeah, we're seeing um, consistently you know, brands have been involved for uh, some time in terms of uh, involved with events from a brand partnership point of view or a sponsorship point of view. And I think there has been often questions uh, raised about ROI and how they can effectively track that ROI. It's slightly different on, say, pouring right deals, you know, so the big brewers out there or big portfolio. Uh, brand holders where they get an instant return on investment which is straight to bar sales and they've got exclusive rights to that particular drink then you know that's more easily quantifiable whereas big brands come into festivals sometimes it's a challenge to um, um, it is a challenge to you know how they directly correlate that sort of investment into sales so um, yeah so that, that's what's been happening and I think we've seen more and more briefs where brands are coming to market now uh, effectively to potentially own that space, you know, create their own communities <clears throat> and then them almost act as a promoter or they'll go out to market and get an agency to help drive footfall and sales. Uh, so, you know, this is driven from years ago where, you know, Innocent had their own sort of festival which was free and I think mm -hmm. now it's more accepted that even brands can commercialise these events and we're seeing it, you know, more and more in the sort of briefs that we're seeing come to us? Uh, I'm guessing, uh, and I suppose you'll have had some um, uh, discussion with the brands at some point as to why they're perhaps feeling that they're not getting the ROI in terms of their relationship with certain events. Um, is some of that driven by the increased amount of media options that you've got? And there's so many different types of vertical strands of media that uh, consumers can activate with a particular event that it just becomes more and more difficult to actually justify the cost of 
the headline sponsorship of a, of a festival, for example, and how you can actually track what that headline sponsorship is giving you against what you could do yourself through all these different vertical media strands now. I think, yeah, there's more, obviously there's much more, you know, channels, that, you know, one of the reasons for sponsorship is, you know, getting directly into that audience, you know, within a confined space where you've got effectively a face-to-face -face audience, potentially for a weekend, you know, where you wouldn't in normal, you know, or traditional, so like outdoor media and billboards where, you know, the sort of dwell time, interaction time is seconds, here, uh, you know, the belief was and, and still is, I guess, in certain circles that with festival sponsorship or large-scale event sponsorship, you know, you've got a much longer propensity to engage with those particular, you know, the target audience or the audience that's attending that event. Um, however, you know, there are so many, you know, channels now where effectively, you know, uh, millennials and people attending events, you know, they all drop out through things like Twitter or any of their social channels, any sponsorship link fairly quickly, you know, whereas during traditional times where there weren't those channels so readily available, um, you know, they were engaged and immersed, whereas now there's this whole hybrid event taking place outside, so all the channels that they're seeding content, and the content needs to be good and credible. You know, for me to see something on any of our social channels, you know, we're endorsing it. You know, you almost become an editor of your own social stream, don't you? Um, yeah, and you're absolutely. endorsing it, and everybody—it's just with festival movement. You know, all of these new, smaller events are getting massive uh, growth and, and attraction because people want to—it's a—it's a cool thing to say to their social network. Look, I've discovered the latest festival, only five thousand people. It may be not deemed as cool to say, "Do you want to come to V Festival?" You know, because it's well established within the market uh, yeah. and seen as probably more mainstream. There is definitely this trend amongst the, um, if we're using you know, the festival industry as an example, there does seem to have been this trend and this movement in the last three or four years of smaller independent festivals and, and almost like a, you know, a, an element of cool that's crept in to go to you know, three or four small festivals in the summer rather than that one big festival that everybody used to go to in the, in the 90s. Um, and it, it, again, is that... Is that movement amongst the smaller festivals another driving factor in the experience you've had of working with brands who've approached you and perhaps said, look, we want to do something fairly small scale, but ultimately that's under our own umbrella? Yeah, uh, I think, yeah, so it's like, you know, anyone within um, uh, sort of early adopter brands, you know, who are trying to lead the industry that, you know, they do want to be associated with those smaller festivals. Obviously, in return, some festivals deem themselves to be, you know, maybe uh, they don't want to be brand focused, you know, but then when the sort of monetary and commercials come into play, often smaller shows do need that support. Reality. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, so that, that, that is something that is changing, but I think the important thing is for these smaller shows to, um, <clears throat> you know, to be engaged and, uh, they want to see something like peripheral entertainment added, you know, content added to the show. I don't think you can keep, um, you know, you can just be a sponsor and just say, be on a scrim on the main stage. You know, that, that will, I think, generate zero engagement from both the audience and deliver no ROI. Um, so I think, I think that's something, you know, delivering content into the show is really, really important. Could we put into context for, for viewers and listeners of, of today's episode um, 
what type of thing we may be talking about. Are you able to, to, to bring to light any examples of brands who've, who've successfully delivered their own event and, and what type of event that was so that we can really sort of give good context to what we're talking about here? Yeah, so uh, there's, there's two sides, uh, you know, these are a couple of our clients. So we work for um, Hammerson, for example. So Hammerson <clears throat> are, I would say, pretty thought leaders, you know, thought leaders in terms of placemaking, a term that's often used within property at the moment. Uh, so they're developing their own content. I mean, we're developing it on their behalf, their client, uh, over the course of the next 18 months. And it's trying to deliver almost seen as promoted shows, externally promoted shows within public realm and space that they co-own with the council alone exclusively. Right. So for example, we're producing a light festival next week and there's elements of commercialization being brought into that. Um, you know, and that has worked really successfully, you know, because ultimately it's, it's creating destination footfall, not just transient within Southampton, which is, is the area yeah. we're talking yeah. about. And therefore, you know, it's also producing, uh, increased footfall and therefore sales within the F&B units that surround it, which is obviously on their rent roll. So, yeah. you know, it does work for them commercially and they're even, you know, looking at like paid for, so paid for content, people coming in and paying to attend these events. Even if it's a screening, you know, you can do upgrade packages from, you know, even selling headphones through deck chairs. So, so, you know, they're, I wouldn't say they're necessarily at the forefront, but they really are looking from a property perspective you know, they're really leading the pack, and I think you'll see lots and lots of people, other property developers, looking at how they engage, A, with the community, and B, to the wider audience, and trying to attract, you know, outside their catchment areas in, which will yeah. lead to, you know, more sales, because the high street, as everyone knows, is really, really uh, hard to get people, you know, with the internet, you know, people are sitting at home yeah. more and more. Um, so that's a challenge there, and then just with brands, even, it, Another brand working with Sip Smith, so they're doing tours of festivals and they're looking at how they truly engage and create an experience that isn't just about serving gin. You know, mm -hmm. so, you know, I can't really speak about the ideas at the moment, but it is all centered around, you know, how do we A, increase the dwell time and get more interaction? And they just want to build loyalty to the brand. You know, if you get a brand loyalist who then leaves, you know, that particular event, uh, you know, coming back to statistic afternoons, but you know, they are almost 40, 42% more likely to go on to make a, you know, a secondary or tertiary spend of that brand, you know, because they believe in it, they test heritage, provenance, you know, Sitzman's got an amazing brand story to tell, you know, it's from, you know, and I think that's really important. You know, gone are the days back when I was younger where, you know, you'd never question brands on where it was manufactured, you know, the sort of factory conditions, whereas yeah. now, you know, people, yeah, so people really want to know about the brand and they will engage and they'll be really loyal if, they, if it's something they believe in. Whereas before, you know, people's propensity to change brand overnight was fairly common because they didn't know anything about it. There was no sort of brand heritage architecture around it. When we talk about sort of brand heritage and, um, and brand loyalty among customers, if you, if you look at some of the you know, major clothing brands or certain types of clothing brand or, or, or drinks, um, often they are associated with a certain lifestyle or maybe even a certain type of genre of music that that particular you know, brand of clothing is associated with. And um, it, does it appear that some of those brands are actually wanting to, to actually bring that 
that lifestyle that's associated with their brand actually to the fore and create that whole lifestyle ethos within a, a short period of time within an event. So I think, you know, there was a really good uh, uh, article over the weekend in a, in a magazine, this is about Nike, but just saying that almost, you know, the youth of today are starting to control or edit their own channels. So you might see that Nike's just done a big campaign of uh, FK Twigs. And effectively, she got to control all of the aspects from the, the photographer is her own photographer. You know, whereas years ago, that would be dictated by the brand. You know, effectively, you'd be called in, you'd get an endorsement fee. It would be their in-house photographer or whatever photographer they chose. You know, the clothing. You, you, do you know what I mean? So it was the brand yeah. dictating yeah. the look and feel, whereas the whole campaign's been almost edited by her and her team from, you know, the look and feel of the shoot, you know, and almost they're leading and they're getting, you know, endorsements that way rather than the brand sort of dictating the audience. Because, you know, they know their audience better than potentially the brand does. So you're seeing lots and lots of clever, I think, lots of brands are really going to, you know, lead that and you're going to see, you know, content being driven by the consumer rather than the brand themselves. Because that gains better advocacy, I think. How, how do you work um, from, from a content delivery point of view then as, a, uh, as an agency um, when you're called in to work with, with a client when they say to you, look, we, we want this engagement level as well. Um, how many different levels are you having to actually work on now when it comes to delivering an event? How many, do, do you then bring in separate social media experts? Do you bring in separate people to work on certain elements of it? Or is that something now that uh, as an organization you have to be very aware of and have the capabilities to deal with collectively in-house? So I think, you know, the really important thing is understanding what the KPIs, you know, which vary from brand to brand, you know, what are they trying to achieve? You know, we have a specific sort of briefing sheet that we've developed and, you know, it looks at things like what would be the perfect tweet, you know, things like that. What is it they're trying to achieve? Because sometimes it can just be footfall, it can be dwell time, it could be, you know, data capture in the most simplistic terms, sampling. I mean, that isn't something we engage with, but for those houses that do do sampling, you know, again, they just want to give out a certain volume of samples on the, I would say, the vain hope that they will become brand uh, ambassadors. But, um, so yeah, it really, it's really important up front and we obsess about understanding from those brands what is it that they want to do, you know, what, what, what would success look like for all of us. Um, yeah. And then from there you can start, you know, working up a brief and often briefs will come in to us, you know, uh, and we will challenge those briefs as much as we can because it's all around getting as much detail. You know, if you get a paragraph, which rarely, fortunately for us, happens, but I have seen it, uh, which just says, you know, we want to do a festival or we want to be doing some sort of, you know, live activation, you know, it's important to challenge them and make sure they understand, because sometimes it's been known that they don't, you know, it's uh, coming up towards the end of the financial quarter, they've got some money from marketing and feel they need to do something and don't truly know what that could look like. Uh, sure, yeah. So that, that's really important, you know, understanding the brief. And then from there, you know, we would normally set two paths. One would be down the production route and one would be down the creative route. And in the middle yeah. somewhere, there needs to be a marrying of, obviously, some realism brought from uh, production generally up to creative, you know, to say, you know, these are the aspirations for, that we have. Yeah. Uh, this is what we can truly deliver for that budget. And there's a happy medium and hopefully the clients involved in that conversation.
So it's, it's really important to involve them throughout the whole process. We, we feel. Um, just just touching on the the placemaking um, uh, elements and, and and this this concept that, that that's growing at the moment. Has the shift in in brands, brand events themselves, and how brands want to create their own events, also led you to working in environments and in venues and in locations that are very, very new to you as well. Um, as people source somewhere to actually have their event and more and more events are springing up, are you having to be more creative in the venue sourcing side of things as well? Uh, yeah. <coughs> I mean, our general routes are you know, more outside, uh, mm -hmm. but you know, I can definitely wholeheartedly say that is a massive challenge, you know, trying to convince any uh, borough that you want to bring a large-scale event within their borough, you know, yeah. is is a massive challenge. And um, you know, what used to be um, a fairly simplistic licensing process, so you know, premises license, etc., would lead, you know, that would be almost a consultation process. That is changing. You know, you almost need to do a pre-consultation. So for things like ward councillors, councillors themselves, uh, that all happens before you can even apply to then put in a license. You know, and then you go through the license process. Then you generally, in ninety percent of times or occasions, will go to a committee hearing. So that so that is really drawn out, uh, and is a nervous time for any promoter. You know, we can't guarantee, and it'll be the same for a brand. You know, we had it with a large scale brand who was involved in Notting Hill Carnival last year. Uh, you know, uh, that we had to look at the whole licensing again because uh, you know some of the aspects of Carnival haven't had the best reputation and we're trying to bring that element that you know is a safe environment um, so you know there is a big um, a massive challenge I think in finding those unique venues and then it's the same with uh, indoor you know we do get briefs for large-scale events but you know especially a lot of our work in London you know everybody every empty warehouse that we try you know everyone's just trying to get obviously planning and then build as high a rise as they can to uh, then retire in their chosen country. So it's a it's a massive thing, and we get you know I get it daily from brands and roads saying I've seen a warehouse or do you know of any? And that 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 market is moving so fast, it's really hard to lock down an unusual venue. Um, you know, so quickly we need to work over at Printworks, LW is our client there. You know, and they've found something I think really unique. You know, it used to be the Evening Standard Printworks. Um, something like that, but that is a very unusual situation. You know, in 15 years, I've probably come across five or six venues like that, um, and it's the yeah. same in the regions. You know, we used to do a lot of work in Birmingham. The same is true there. You know, there's an area called Digworth there, and again, they're trying to. There's mass regeneration happening there, so it's hard to get. And just to convert something like a warehouse, you know, one thing you just go in, you know, to convert it, you know, just under health and safety and licensing. There is a huge cost. It's never been used, you know. So it is a it is a real challenge to find something unusual. But they are out there. We've got a team that just specialise in that daily. Um, when you mentioned that um, some of the pre-licensing meetings, so you would consult with ward councillors and and borough councils before you even put together the license application for an event. Are you finding still that there's a disparity between authority to authority in terms of how accessible they are and how 
open they are to the idea of events coming in. Because going back to what you mentioned about the placemaking concept, when you're talking about bringing a lot of people into a, an area that has an impact then on local businesses, on food and beverage, on restaurants, on pubs, hotels, whatever it may be, uh, is yeah. there still a, a, a quite a broad range in terms of how, how well they're, they're, they're taking to this idea that it could be good for business to bring people into their particular area? Yeah, there is, a, and you know, to my frustration, that led, has, uh, led to me write many an email to many boroughs in London. So there is huge disparity. I mean, give an example for one event I'm trying to place at the moment. You know, uh, we I went to see it on Saturday, spoke to their councillor on Sunday, of which today we've got a license in. That you know, that's a three-day process. Something in West London within a borough. Uh, I had to go to pre-consultation, pre-consultation took 28 days, and then they wanted to go to another consultation. You know, so there's unwritten rules here, uh, 60 days, at which point, I, you know, we gave up, and it's ridiculous. So um, th there is, and, and people's understanding of, you know, economic impact, there is a massive negativity around just volume of people. You know, if you start talking 10, 20,000 people, you know, Ward counts that there is a massive negativity without looking beyond, you know, there's huge benefits to events. Um, you know, not only from local businesses, you know, infrastructure, you know, from, you know, ta raising the profile, taxis. Raising the yeah. Uh, and, and it's really ignored. And, you know, I, the whole point of licensing, the, the change of premises licensing was to try and uh, unify across the whole country the process that went through. The whole point of it is that is the consultation. However, now it's almost, you know, shooting ourselves in the foot because we've put in pre-consultation, which basically flags to everybody, hey, we're about to do a license. So, every, you know, it obviously raises and then in local communities they start writing templated letters to everyone. You know, and it makes our job really, really hard. We can't engage with them. Uh, so obviously nobody, generally, <clears throat> um, wants to say, yeah, great, I'm really supportive of an event happening, unless they're from the industry. Uh, I've never heard many residents say, this is the best thing I've ever heard of, I can't wait. Uh, you know, and we've, we've spent an awful lot of investment and money and time in obviously trying to, you know, make them understand the impact and all of the parameters and uh, conditions we've put in place, you know, to make sure, you know, we're not careless. This is our jobs and our promoters, you know, livelihoods. So, so we don't just roll in on the day and decide to put on an event. You know, there's a lot of effort, which is all around mitigating risk and, you know, and it's not just due to care for our own customers. It's it's all about, obviously, the local residents, local infrastructure, not affecting that, not putting over, you know, waiting or emphasis on, say, local transport infrastructure which, you know, is often forgotten. So, yeah, I would like to see more unification, um, and I was hoping that that was what the Premise Licence Act was doing, but <laughs> I don't think that's the same. Same as CDM, it's differently interpreted across the country um, uh, by various officers. And it's interesting that you mentioned different London boroughs, and I know that you were very careful not to name specific boroughs, but that there is clearly a difference from one to the other, yet you would you would hope perhaps that in somewhere like London that at the very least at least all the London boroughs are working off the same hymn sheet and the same processes 
Um, it's interesting again that that's something that perhaps we need to explore um, in, an, in, another, in another episode of Via Event Industry News is is how much drive is there to actually unify the process amongst just you know the the, the, the local authorities because whilst the people continue to talk about devolution and giving budgetary power to big cities like Manchester and Birmingham and everything. Um, you know, why are the London boroughs still not talking to each other or working together in terms of the licensing process for these events? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's I mean, yeah, I mean, an example is I had one uh, borough commander ring me, uh, you know, and said, I can't put it on email, but effectively I'll do everything in my power to ensure that you don't get a license. Um, you know, which, you know, and he can't put that in email, obviously, because technically you can't be ringing people making those sort of bold claims. So that is a mass frustration for me. And, you know, I think unduly unfair without even, you know, letting us speak or, you know, have a voice. It's just driven on, I think, general, you know, politics within that particular borough. So let's look at the, 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 the well, not that's a, a negative necessarily, but that's certainly one facet of of the process of putting on these events. When we look at the actual creative side of things as well, how how much um, how much more flexible are you now in today's uh, world with the hardware and the technology that you've got at your disposal to be able to create um, wonderful, engaging, creative events, even on quite a small scale, using the means that you've got at your disposal nowadays? And when you look back, perhaps in the last twelve months, are there specific examples that spring to mind where you think that is an absolute benchmark? We're really proud of that one. Uh, I mean, the, the work we're doing with Hammerson, you know, because their uh, sort of vision is, you know, not to do what's classed as sort of regionally successful events. You know, they're looking at, you know, which is a it's a bold move in my opinion, which is something I endorse. You know, they're looking at world class events. You know, which does come with a budget. However, you know, we're speaking to, you know, we've got uh, an art installation going into one of their. Uh, venues which will be a world first you know that that is groundbreaking for for a developer to be thinking like that and understanding the you know the economic impact that surrounds it the sort of you know reach they'll get in terms of you know social channels and hopefully positive sentiment but also you know marketing it gives them a reason to go to market and drive uh, you know destination footfall to say not only you know because it's very hard to say yeah as an example say West field or any of the Hammerson portfolio, you know, we're open uh, this Saturday, you know, the same shops are open, the same shops are trading, you know, this is another reason to go back to your audience and say, you know, that is true, however, this weekend we've got an international dance festival, or we've got, you know, this world first, you know, and people, I think, uh, in the current day, more than ever, are really seeking out experiences and, and also immersive experiences. You know, they want to be involved. You know, events industry as a whole is, in my opinion, very buoyant. Uh, oh, and people are looking yeah. for those unusual things and always, you know, wanting to, to get involved, you know, and search high and low. I mean, that's why these smaller events are so successful because of, you know, the great reach of internet and search that you can now do. You know, but people will spend hours trying to find something that's unusual that not necessarily any of their friend network would know about. You know, and then they gain great sort of social status, don't they, by saying, you know, I've discovered something before you type of thing. 
absolutely. And I think uh, when, when I re reflect on it a little bit, the drive for more brand uh, experiences and brands themselves taking on their own events, I think is also partly related to, to consumers' tastes becoming a little bit more sophisticated in, in the last few years. Um, you know, food, drink, the arts, um, how they choose to watch or engage with live entertainment. Um, I think everybody's tastes have become that little bit more sophisticated that people really now, rather than being told what to experience, are demanding certain experiences based on their tastes, um, which is why you see more food festivals cropping up and um, you see people like Tom Kerridge launching his own you know, food yeah. and music festival down in, in, in Marlow um, this year. You know, that, that's got to be as a result of people watching more food programs on TV and taking a greater interest in artisan food and high-quality food. Um, yeah. I don't know what your thoughts on that in terms of consumers' actual tastes and how that's reflected in it. Well, I think, you know, they are consuming more and more media, you know, because of, you know, the world of streaming and online. However, I think, you know, there's still a massive gap in then taking that experience, you know, offline and into the live environment. And that's why, you know, food, you know, and more specialist shows. Over the course of the last week, I saw a new uh, TV show launched, I think, called Wine Show. So, you know, that's much more specialist. Five, six years ago, there would have been a much more overarching show you know, driven by a celebrity chef and therefore covering different aspects, you know, whether it be wine and then food. Whereas now, one of our clients, Drink Up, you know, they do uh, a whiskey week show. They do, um, uh, they do beer show. They do London Cocktail Week. And London Cocktail Week gets, you know, up to 70,000 people. So people are, you know, very individualized and very specific in what they want from that experience. And, you know, just if you look at cocktails and mixologists now, they've become celebrities in their own right. You know, if they're aligned or associated with, you know, a, a very a good hotel that's got good brand behind it and known for its own mixology, it, you know, it, it's huge. Uh, and people are looking to follow them and there's more and more propensity, I think, for people to go and have, take that offline you know, those uh, sort of experiences offline. And yeah. there's nothing better than being in that shared environment, I think. And that's why there's longevity within, you know, large events, brand events, festivals, because people want to have, you know, that shared experience that will last, you know, for, you know, for a long time, forever. Uh, you know, people often cite from their youth times where, you know, if you'd say to them, you know, tell me about, you know, one of your best experiences in life, it would be maybe a holiday or, going to a festival with your, you know, with your mates, uh, mm. seeing a particular band. You know, it, it's not so exciting where you sat at home or gamed with one of your friends. I think those sort of experiences are quite short in terms of dwell time. You know, whereas a festival is longer and also the experience remains with you for a much longer time. And bringing us, I suppose, to a, a, a nice conclusion and a loop background as to why brands are really seeking to to deliver their own events now is that is that engagement it's that creating a lasting memory that people will ultimately associate with that particular brand yeah and i think you know and brands are being really clever about you know the way they present themselves i think you can't uh you know you can't just say yeah this is a, a branded content piece by 
you know, say Vodafone as an example, you know, I think you can't just throw the brand down people's throats. It, you know, going back to Sipsmith, they've just done, talking about cocktails, but they've just done a, an experience for over six weeks with Ham Yard Hotel in Soho uh, where uh, hot gin cocktails, that was, you know, the whole mixology piece with Ham Yard, and all the branding is really, really subtle. You know, I think it just sits on some of their blankets. It's not just branded Sipsmith this, Sipsmith that, because consumers don't want to be just sold to. You know, it's they're much more uh, well, they're much more savvy, and and I think it's one of the instant knee-jerk reactions that turns uh, potential consumers off is the thought of them being sold to by a brand will immediately turn them away from that brand. You know, they need to be. It's always like nurturing or courting. Uh, you know, courting, you know, it's a much slower development and therefore when that sort of converts, I say, to be a brand loyalist or a convert, a com, you know, a converted individual, they stay with that brand a lot longer. You know, and Sixsmith's got, I, you know, I use an example, so we've just been working with them on some, uh, some creative, but, you know, they're really building five, six year relationships with some of their consumers who really believe in it. You know, they sell out towards the distillery because people you know, get what they're about and they've bought into their vision and almost they're coming on the journey with that brand. Whereas, you know, I said earlier in the interview, but, you know, years ago, it was a very often instant sales, you know, based on sort of advertising and what came to forefront of mind and the more money you pumped above the line would often link to sales because the channels are quite narrowed. Uh, you know, that has changed. You know, there's so many channels now, so... It absolutely has. Um, Nick, we're going, to, uh, we're going to need to wrap things up there, but I think that just one of the final things you said there in terms of consumers being more savvy, uh, being more aware, they don't want to be sold to, you know, that they, they, want, they will be happy to engage with a brand if they feel that they're being given an experience or something that's worthwhile engaging, I think is, is good advice to, um, to anybody out there looking to, to get into the marketplace or, or if there are other organisers out there or people dipping their toe into that side of things. Um, it's good advice for anybody. Um, if you are watching today's podcast via eventindustrynews.co.uk or via one of its other video platforms, don't forget that you can hop over to iTunes and also listen to the audio version of the podcast and subscribe to that. Um, for now, we should thank Nick Morgan from uh, Big Cat Group and The Fair for joining today's podcast. Nick, thank you very much for uh, coming on the line. Oh, thanks, James. And uh, thanks very much to everybody for uh, tuning in to the Event Industry News podcast. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.